Today, we wrap up our time in this conversation that we've been having for three months about tribal living. And uh, once again, let me remind you of why we're, we've studied these tribes, especially for those who have come to us uh, here in the, in the ninth inning in this, in this conversation. We've looked at tribes around the world because we may have differences of uh, approaches to God. But I will say, by the way, that you can't just assume because there are tribes that they don't believe in Christ. Many tribes around the world do believe in Christ because of the sacrificial work of missionaries who have gone out. And so when you look at their, uh, the tribes, whether we agree uh, on a spiritual level or not, from a relational level, tribes, because they live together and work together and they hunt together and, and, and they do all the things they do together, often do a better job at relationships than we have in the church. So therefore, I'm of the mind that you learn from everyone. And so we've learned from tribes and why and what they do and how they react. For example, one of the things that we've talked about over and over and, and repetitively is that in a tribe, everybody pitches in. In a tribe, no one sits on the log while other people are doing all the work. That's true for your family tribe, hopefully. It's true for a church tribe. It's true true for your, your work uh, tribe, wherever you are. So that in our family, everybody does something. There's trash to be taken out. There's bills to be paid. There are patios to be scrubbed. Uh, there's dad's car to be washed. Well, that one's never been washed. Uh, so there are different, different jobs. And in the church, everyone pitches in. And for that reason, I, I must say once again, I'm so proud of this church. That, that gradually and progressively more people are putting their oars in the water, not just to fulfill a position, to be, but to be a part. And that's what it means to be part of the tribe of Christ, to put a jersey on and not just attend, but to participate. For example, we've had a, an act group that said, hey, we'll teach two-year-olds. And uh, they've stepped up, and as a group, they rotate in a two-year-old class. I just, I just think that's just uh, so encouraging. Today we talk about, as we leave this series, leave this collection of thought, something that I believe is so important, and I placed it at the end, because it will either take us to greater places as a tribe, or it will sink us. And the same is true for your family, for your marriage, for your workplace, that if without this element of tribal living, your your chances of thriving, not just surviving, but thriving the way that God has designed you to thrive, rests so much on this. It is a relational issue because every single tribe, again, whether it's work, marriage, church, every single tribe has an inevitable entanglement of coat hangers. In other words, there are inevitable times where we get sideways with one another. It happens. Based on what we'll learn today, I believe that as you enter into these intersections where we inevitably will get sideways with one another, it depends on how you approach that intersection. Today, we speak about tribal muscle, relational muscle. In other words, how strong are you before you arrive at the inevitable intersection of disagreement. And for that reason, I'm going to pause right now and pray because this is a critical 
issue that that uh, hits all of us right across home plate. So let's pause. Father, we understand that following Christ is not about modifying our behavior. It's not behavior modification. It's about transformation, God. And we recognize that we can't do that on our own. For that reason, as we have sung, we're grateful for the cross to have taken all of our past. And as we receive Christ, we receive forgiveness. We receive a new beginning. We receive a new chapter. We receive a clean slate. But Father, you did not end on the cross with Christ dying for us. He was buried, God, and raised from the dead so that he can empower us to live in your design. So with that in mind, Father, I ask for supernatural movement today of your Holy Spirit within us, marriages, friendships, church, work. All of us, God, are in one tribe or another. So we give our hearts to you and our minds to you, God, and ask truly that you would move and and create in us an open mind and the ability, God, to act on what we hear today. We ask this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as many of you know, I go to the gym. It's hard to tell, I know, but I go to the gym. And what I've learned is that you can't just unfortunately go to the gym just once a year. If you could, I'd do it. I would love the fact if you, if this were a reality, I'd love it. You walk in the gym, you pick up a 15 pound dumbbell, you do one curl, you put it down, you go and you're set for the year and all of a sudden you look really super buff, you know, or whatever it's called. You got guns or any, I'm learning the lingo. They're gym lingo, right? It doesn't work that way, does it? Of course, we know that. In order to build muscle, you have to do what we call reps. And there's so many reps in a set. So you might have 15 reps of curls in one set, but it's not enough just to do one rep or one set. You have to do more than one set. So I have a guy in our church that looks like what I would love to look like, but pretty much given up on that, but I'd like to look something like he's got these great muscles and all that. So I bring him to the gym with me. And so we meet and I've got an app and we go through and he's got a whole routine and, and, uh, I go through that and some of the some of the, the exercises, we do five sets of all these reps. By the time we get to the end of it, I'm like Don Knotts in those, you know, shaky chicken movies or whatever. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and, um, but over time, I'm noticing that I can amp the weight up. That's how it works. In other words, muscle is built on repetition. Muscle is built on repetition. Relational muscle is no different. We cannot expect to come into an intersection where there's a disagreement, an argument, tension, whatever word you want to put on it. We cannot expect to come into that intersection unprepared, unstrung, unlifted with weights and expect that to go successfully. We must be prepared in advance. We all have these intersections where when we, when we come into them, I don't know about you, but we can get 
just washed in, up into it, swirled into it, and it's as if we can't get out of it. And sometimes when you look at the examples of the Bible, the reason I love the Bible, it's just not a book. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's just not a book of poetry. It's not a book of just inspirational concepts. It's a book that is chunk full of people like you and me, broken, sometimes failing, sometimes blowing it, sometimes even the greatest of people like Peter in the Bible, like a guy like that that hung out close to Jesus and still blew it. That gives me a lot of hope that it's just not me because otherwise religion can make you all feel crummy. But the Bible gives us hope because there's real failures. And when there's real failures, that's where God says, let me work and let me change. So quite often we look in, in, in these um, chapters and we find an example because, face it, in America today, it's becoming progressively easier and easier to just step outside of a marriage. Divorce rate is at a terribly high rate. And so often it's because of the lack of muscle, the lack of resilience, the lack of persistence, the lack of stick-withedness, the lack of spiritual muscle that prepares us for these elements. Now, I understand that in a room like this, there are those of you that have gone through the deeply painful uh, intersection of divorce. And we truly are compassionate and know how difficult that is. And there's a, there's a complexity to divorce and, we, and, and no one can make it a black and white simple answer. There are times in a relationship, if there's, for example, physical abuse, that that, that relationship needs to, to go to a different place. There are unfaithfulness. There are times in the scripture where this, where God says that that should not be tolerated. There are times in a church tribe that there, because we live in such a migratory Culture, but there are times in a, even in the church world where in a, and if you're involved in the church, they say, you know what, I, I must leave. There are times where if, if a church is not standing on the word of God, if there has been such a, a doctrinal separation between the word of God and uh, between what a church may believe and what the, the Bible says, it is not it is not appropriate to stay. I'll, I'll be so strong as that. Perhaps there's. A continual moral failure on the part of the leadership in, in, in regards to their own personal morality or even debt, financial debt, or perhaps there's no vision. There are moments. I don't speak of any of those today. What I want to focus on is the relational intersections that should never cause us to leave. In other words, when we get sideways with one another, when there's tension, those are not, those are not reasons why we we say, I'm just out of here. That's too easy. It doesn't require the muscle that Christ had with us. Just think about the muscle that it took for Christ to look down onto the world and said, I will love you anyway. An incredible level of muscle. What muscle that must have took, taken on Christ's part to walk with 12 guys, all of whom left him, not just Judas, not just Peter who denied him, but at the cross, there was no one. And yet Christ exercised muscle enough to go back to all of them, uh, except Judas, of course, went back to Peter and said, I know you acted like you didn't even know me. To people that didn't even, you didn't even know and that didn't even matter to you, said you never knew me. But you see, because I've got muscle, I'm going back to you. 
Christ always sets the standard, does he not? Often we look in the scripture and we look at examples to make the picture a little bit vivid. When you look at the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and you were trying to find those moments that were not their best moments, where they just were fighting and feuding, honestly, I could have picked from 187 different (laughs) examples today, but I decided to pick one of their worst moments. You might have remembered the intersection if you know the stories of the Old Testament. God called the nation of Israel, rescued them out of the oppression. They were slaves in Egypt. And he took them out of Egypt and he promised to them, beginning with Abraham, by the way, even before Moses came on the scene, before they were slaves in Egypt, promised to them this land that is called the promised land, Canaan, as it was called in the Old Testament. And in order to get over there, when they got closer and they were getting ready to go in, as anyone would do, as any nation would do, they did some black ops, as we would call CIA intel. They sent 12 representatives, 12 spies, even as it was said in the scripture. And they, and they were trying just to, the assignment was not to determine whether or not the nation of Israel should have gone, because God says, I'm giving you that land. That's a done deal. I'm giving it to you. But I, I, from knowing who God is, my guess is that he sent them over to come back and say, wow, it's fantastic. The land is flowing with milk and honey. It's so beautiful. There's pastures. And look at the produce to, to come back to encourage the people to affirm what God had already said. But if you know the story, you'll know that 10 out of 12 of them came back and freaked everybody out. They said the people are bigger than they were. They were looking through the glass half empty. The people are much bigger than they are. In fact, in their sight, we're like grasshoppers. And it didn't stop with their opinion, as it never does, by the way. They spread it out and they freaked out the whole tribe. They freaked out the entire camp, the nation of Israel. And that's where we pick it up on one of the ugliest moments in the nation of Israel. Because what we learn today is the response of godly people. See, Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, they could have responded in like, which is easy to do as human beings, but we'll see today they didn't. And we'll learn from them what it takes, what spiritual muscle takes in relational intersections that are tough. So we begin in Numbers chapter 14. And when I read this Numbers chapter 14, I look at it, and this is why I love the Bible so much. Because it hits us right where we're at and we, you read it and like, man, I've been there a lot. I've been there and it's so real. I'm like, that. Ah. And so what I've done, if we can bring this uh, up, I, I have, I've put kind of a, a, a description of what happens when things get out of line. So the first thing that happens when we're having an argument or disagreement, the very first thing that typically happens is emotions get amped up, right? And the moment, the moment emotions slash Tabasco get amped up and things get spiced up, then we stop seeing clearly and everything begins to head southward. And so their emotions got amped up that night. All the people of the community, they raised their voices. And they wept out loud. Oh, doomsday. We're, this is awful. This is terrible. I don't like it. And then what happens is, Almost nearly every time we 
We have to pick a target, do we not? Our emotions cause us to want to make sure that there's a winner and a loser. And most of the time, guess one, which one we're not. <laughs> and so they said, all the Israelites, they grumbled against uh, Moses and his brother Aaron. And then, of course, there are some times where we begin to blame God. He gets the blame too. Why has he put me in this situation? And they said, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Oh, yeah, that was the perfect plan that God had all in mind. See how emotions just has taken things. And then, boy, I'm a master at the next one. We exaggerate the problem. The wills are coming off. This is the worst day of my entire life. And I hate you, right? I mean, it just gets way out there. And they say, our wives and our children will be taken as plundered. They're going to come in and take everything that we have. And then that leads to a logical conclusion. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt and be slaves and less than dirt and oppressed and treat it like awfulness? Oh, that's a great idea. Our conclusion just like, what? And then finally, they're followed by bad actions. And they said to each other, hey, let's shoot the pastor, shall we? Why should we choose, we should choose another leader and just head right back to Egypt. And then you find yourself in this intersection. Watch. If you're the recipient of it. This is where human strength is not enough. Humans mirror one another. You get angry with me, I get angry with you. You might have heard of road rage. Ever heard of it? Oh, yeah. That's usually the beginning of road rage, is it not? <laughs> I've never had road rage. Have I, honey? Say yes now. <laughs> there are moments in road rage that you like 18 seconds later, you think, who am I? I would never say that, but I just said, I, right? It's just surprising. You look in the mirror like, that's like a little Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing going on there. This is where, when we come into these intersections, it all depends on how much we've lifted before. It depends on how well we've developed our muscles. It's not about that intersection. It's about what happened before. It's not about how, how we think, oh, I can, I've got this great plan. Because listen, listen real carefully. I know well enough. I've been doing this a long time. We could spend every Sunday for the rest of the year talking about handling tension and disagreements and road rage and all that. And you'll be totally fine. And we'll all nod our heads and we get the concept until it's your turn. It's your turn. And it's that moment, I'm telling you, that it, it, it matters. So when we look at the response of Moses and Aaron and Joshua, I think, wow. You know what I look at when I see them? Honestly, these guys have been to the gym. These guys have been to the spiritual gym. They've been practicing before this intersection. Had they not, it would have been chaos. Watch. Here's the first thing we learn. They positioned themselves before God 
to have a different perspective of other people. Let me say it again. They position themselves before God so they have a different perspective of other people. Watch. They had every right. These people who Moses and Aaron had led with great pain, painstakingly led them out. They're griping all the way at that point to say, oh, yeah, they didn't. After they had griped at him, after they wanted to pick another leader, after they wanted to impeach Moses, after they said, let's go back to where we came from and just retract everything we've learned, first thing Moses did was this. Moses and Aaron, verse 5, number 14. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Watch. Your first move is an indicator of your instincts. And your instincts are an indicator of your habits. Let me say it again. Your first move, pop! Your first reaction, pop! Is an indicator of your instincts. And those instincts are developed by your habits. You see... That's why we go, we go to, to the gym so that when we reach those moments that where strength is needed, all the preparation then comes into that place. Have you ever helped somebody move? They call you up and say, Hey, I'm going to get a bunch of guys and, you know, come on over. A bunch of people come on over and help me move. And you show up and it's like that moment where you realize you're the only one that showed up. You know what I'm talking about? Those of you all parked in the uh, driveway. And suddenly, you know, you text your wife, call me now with an emergency. You know, you're trying to get out of it, but you're there. You're trying to do the right thing. I, that, it happened to me one time. And uh, so we're moving, and there's just, a, you know, to put icing on the cake, there's a light drizzle outside. Wonderful. That's, it just makes it really perfect. And so we're moving, and I uh, say, so, hey, it's now time. Let's put the big stuff in. It's the sofa time. And uh, as soon as I bent over, I realized it wasn't a sofa. It was a sofa bed. You know, they only weigh like 800 pounds. Now, they had cats. Okay, I, how many cat lovers do we have in a room? Awesome. That's beautiful. Get out. Uh, just kidding. I'm playing. <laughs> no, cats have a place. They, they, they taste like chicken. <laughs> that's really bad. No, that's bad. That's bad. <laughs> I'm playing, I'm playing, kind of. Just lost half of you. Um, well, I'm not a cat lover. I'm highly allergic to cats. And so when I when I reached down to get this sofa, you could have combed the couch. You know what I'm talking about? There's enough cat hair. And then, remember, it's lightly drizzling, so we're standing outside, and, and I never I never really had the strength to come all the way up. You know what I'm talking about? So I'm, and we're doing this, like mini steps. Um, and so put the couch down, you know, my face went into the couch and when I came up, it was like Santa Claus, like, <laughs> it's funny. They never found the cat after that. Uh, I think he was under the sofa bed. Oh, Hey there, Misty. <laughs> you see, I was unprepared for that moment. <laughs> See, Moses had been with God a lot before that moment. He could lift the couch because he'd been to the gym. He could fall on his face because he had fallen on his face before. And watch, when we fall on our face, 
And we come before God like we sang about this morning and come before the cross. There is an amazing discovery that we as human beings are all equal. That nobody is on a pedestal above anyone else. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us in verse 3, Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but rather think of yourself, here it comes, with sober judgment. And when we position ourselves before God on a consistent basis, it's sobering. It's sobering. You see, we don't pray because we have to. We pray because we must. We pray because we need to. We don't pray because it's the right thing to do. We pray because it's the only thing to do. We pray because we will desperately fall into human nature if we don't come before God and say, God, thank you for reminding me once more that I am a sinner saved by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I am equal to all people. Therefore, when I come into an intersection, guess what? I'm not going to elevate myself. There's a wonderful verse. In fact, I've listed it in the, in the uh, small group questions this week. Uh, Proverbs 13.10. And, and it reminds us that every time there's strife, there's pride. Every time. You cannot have uh, strife and pride not be present. That's why we come before God and say, God, let me lower myself one more time before you. There's a lot of reasons for prayer, but that's one of them. Here's the second thing that happened. Not only do we lower ourselves, but we keep our eye at a high line of sight. We keep our eye at a high line of sight. Here's what I mean by that. Anybody ever had an argument and it just went on and on and on? And by the time you got to the argument, you can't even remember what you're arguing about. Anybody had that? And it just proves that this is stupid. This issue is stupid. Watch. In every tribe you, that you operate in, your family, your marriage, your, your parenting, your church, whatever, there's always a grander story at stake. My wife and I, we had a powwow yesterday. Three hours. Now, I like to be transparent before you. I told somebody else that today, we've, we've walked with them in our marriage. I will tell you this, that this week, my wife and I had a powwow. You know what? Because I don't want you to look at the McCoys like we never have an intersection. You know what that is? It's baloney. <laughs> it's baloney. Everybody does. Are you, you know, you, if you graduate from seminary, that means you don't have an intersection with your wife. Are you kidding? But we said, let's sit down and work this out. You know why? There's a bigger story. People are watching. We're supposed to say, we're not the couple like Leave It the Beaver, the sitcom where you never have an argument. We're a couple that has an intersection just like anybody else does. But it's the, here's the time people are watching. Here's the time. Here's another big story. Our our boys, like they need to see that mom and dad can work out an issue because we have spiritual muscle. Because there's a bigger story. We represent Jesus Christ. 
The world is not looking for perfect people. They're working for imperfect people who allow a perfect God to transform them into something that they can't become on their own. That's the way we give people hope. It's so easy to get so centered and on the small things. In fact, when we, our emotions get involved, somehow the grander story gets granularized. It gets broken down. I saw this this week. I don't know if you saw this. This guy was catching a baseball. He was in the stands. It was a foul ball sitting on the first first baseline. And the, the small story was like, man, I want that baseball. I'm going to get that baseball. But there were two other grander stories that he somehow missed when he was going for the smaller story of catching the baseball. Let's see if you can catch what the two grander stories are. Let's take a look. What a catch! A Chicago dad celebrates a pretty impressive balancing act. That is a heck of a play. He caught a foul ball at last night's Cubs game at Wrigley Field while holding and feeding his baby boy. And he didn't spill a drop. Unfortunately, not everyone is celebrating Keith's amazing catch. There are bigger things in life than a foul ball. That's unbelievable. The announcers and the ball player are really upset. That's because Keith reached into the field of play to grab the ball, snatching it before the first baseman could. Took it out of his glove. Yes, he did. They wanted him thrown out of the park for interfering with the game. Crowd now booing. He's supposed to be kicked out of the game, too. Well, that's a great feeling, having a whole stadium boo you. So, of course, he missed the first grander story. Hey, there's a game going on, professional athletes, and he just happened to reach into the field of play. And the second grander story is that little creature in his lap. These are the moments. These are the moments where you have to look grander. So here's what happened. Moses and Aaron fall down there to their face. Joshua stands up and keeps his sight at a higher line and said, Guys, there's a bigger story than this little thing right here. Watch what he says in Numbers chapter 14, verse 7. Joshua stands up and says, The land that we passed through and the land that we went over and spied on and explored is exceedingly good. You're missing that point right now. And that's the bigger story. It's not just a land. It's a promised land. And it wasn't just promised to us. It was promised to our lineage, our heritage. It was promised to Abraham. You see, the story that we live as the American church is not the story of the American church. It's the story of Christ church, which started in the Middle East, by the way, and moved to Asia and to Europe. We only are just playing a very small part. We're in a grand story that's exceedingly good. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. I'm reminded today of Paul's words, words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, talking about the trials that we have in life. He says, no, put it in bigger. Put it in the, uh, the whatever the trial is, it's small compared to the bigger picture. Paul says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that, watch, far outweighs all of these problems. So we fix our eyes. We have muscles. We say, God, I'm not going to let it get me down. I'm going to fix my eyes. I'm going to I'm going to lift weights in my eyes. I'm going to fix my eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. For whatever issue it is, it's small. 
but what is unseen is eternal. See, Christ said about the church, he said, look, this church, even the gates of hell won't prevail against it. We serve in a church that will not prevail or will not fail, I should say, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, we're such, whatever it is that we might get bent out of shape, oh, it's just a small little crumb in compared to the bigger story that we are ambassadors to Christ. I love conflict. Isn't that weird? I love, I love when people, when we come to the table and we say, man, let's work it out. Because see, the world doesn't look on and say, man, you guys just get along on Sunday morning. You know what I gotta say that? Big deal. Of course we do. I've never seen a fight on Sunday morning. Although I say we start one this morning. What the heck? I love conflict. <laughs> but I'm telling you, honest, honest to goodness here, as a pastor, when there's conflict and two people are willing to have the spiritual muscle enough to sit down and work at it, whether it's a man and a wife, whether it's two people in a church, two people in a small group, whatever. And man, they come out and they worked it out. I'm telling you, listen, it amplifies the message of Christ so much louder than any piece of information about the Bible that we could share. Because that's what people are looking for. Now, the third thing and final thing, I put a thinking cap on a little bit uh, uh, on this. So, First act of spiritual muscle, getting low enough consistently to remind ourselves we're all equal. Second, spiritual muscles, keep your high, uh, your eyesight on the high line, the, the bigger, grander story. And here's the, here's the third one. God has created us with a sense of mutualism between us and God. I'll explain what I mean by that because I know that's a little cryptic. There is a sense of mutualism between us and God. Let me break it down. Ecology is the study of how living things relate to one another. That's, that's a very basic understanding of ecology. In other words, when you look at the earth and how it operates, there's not one thing that is separate from the other. They, they all work together. There are different formats of ecology or different uh, levels, the different dimensions, probably a better word. Like uh, there's uh, a predatory dimension. In other words, there's some things that eat other things, and, and that's part of ecology, how they relate to one another. But one of the levels, the dimensions of ecology, is called mutualism. And mutualism means that if you affect one thing, it affects the other. And they're mutually helping one another out. They're mutually, they're not just connected, but there's a mutualism. For example, bees and flowers. So a bee comes to a flower, it's it's receiving the nectar from the flower, so it's a benefit to the bee. But the bee is a benefit to the flower because it takes and cross-pollinates the flower, and now the flowers can reproduce. So it's a win-win, as we would say, but they're mutually connected. Don't know if you know or not, but there is a bee problem in, in on the earth today. And people think, great, less bees get stung less. That, it doesn't work that way. That's not good ecology. It's not good mutualism. Because once you begin to take the bees away, then a lot of different things happen. I've just used flowers and, as an example, but a lot of things happen. Uh, I was out walking this morning. I saw this beautiful woodpecker. I heard this just knocking in the wood. I saw this beautiful woodpecker, and, I, and it reminded me of this picture I saw this week. You wouldn't naturally uh, put these two together. I, I, uh, the first service I called a gazelle, but that's why we have a second service, because people correct me after the first service. It's an impala. Um, what do I know? 
So the little thing sitting on top, that's the Impala, and the other thing is a Gazelle. See how much I learned between services? Take that. How about that? That's a woodpecker on top of a, a, an Impala. Now, who would put those two unlikely characters to go together? But see, the, the Impala has a problem, has ticks. And see, the woodpecker's hungry. So the ticks become the food for the, for the, uh, the woodpecker. And the woodpecker is a benefit to the impala because it takes the ticks off. You remove the woodpecker, you, you have impalas running around with ticks. And who needs that? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> here's another one. Uh, here's a, a, a Nemo. So, uh, you know, the clownfish, they, it hides and lives within the anemones. You have no idea how, many, how much I practice saying that word today, you know, this whole week. Clownfish. Clownfish. I'm just kidding. You see, the anemones, they have these little stingy things on the end of them. And the clownfish was created in such a way that it's the only fish that can be in there and not get killed by those things. So watch. So the anemone offers shelter for the clownfish. But other bigger fish see the clownfish in there and it acts as bait for other fish to come in. And the anemone gets a little snack by stinging. See how that works? Now, here's where I'm going. There is a spiritual ecology. There is a mutualism that human beings are not just completely separate from God. You see, the people were climbing Moses' case they were they were up in his face, and you could have said, well, just back off Moses. But when Joshua stood up, he says in verse 9 in chapter 14, he says, don't rebel against the Lord. You're not just rebelling against Moses, you're rebelling against the Lord. They're connected. Do you remember Saul in the, in the New Testament, and he, his name was eventually turned to Paul? And Saul was, he was uh, in this group of people and they were killing Christians. And then as you if you know the story he encountered Christ in that moment. And, and, and on the going down the road one day Christ shows up a voice from heaven. And our logic would say that Jesus would say to Saul, "Hey, what are you doing? You're killing my people. You're persecuting followers of me. You're persecuting believers in Jesus." But he does not say those words. Watch what he says. Acts chapter 4. Saul fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, the voice of Christ, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus is saying, we have a mutualism here that when you're climbing the case of Moses and you're killing Christians, you're affecting me as well. The two are not divorced. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Saul said, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He never met Jesus. Never saw Jesus. Never touched Jesus in that moment. But he's persecuting the people. He's affecting the bees. He's affecting the flowers. You see the mutualism? It's a mysterious thing. You have to think about it. It also works for the positive. Don't you remember when Jesus said, Matthew chapter 25, when you when people were helping the marginalized, those who couldn't help themselves? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the one, the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. That's beautiful. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. The Lord doesn't need a bank loan. 
He doesn't need that. But you see the mutualism? Now let me tie it in. Let me tie it in. My wife is not just a human being. She's not just my wife. She's a creation of God. And how I treat her is how I treat God. That's that's real. <laughs> that's not conceptual. That's just not some kind of religious mumbo-jumbo. That's the real deal. So the next time I'm tempted and allow and my emotions are telling me to be ugly or short, if I have enough spiritual muscle, I'm like, careful how I'm treating her is how I'm treating God. I got one word for that. Wowza. You have to think on that. And that, in the moment of emotional buildup, is a hard weight, right, to lift. And you'll, we'll never have it together if we haven't been to the gym in prayer before. Let me leave you with this. Each week, we've looked at a tribe around the world. And there's this tribe in Brazil called the Cayapo tribe. And the reason I'm going to bring it up and end this collection with this example is this. It answers the reason why. Why is this so important? So it would be nice so we don't fight. Bigger story than that. Watch. Mostly, the Kayapo learn to put aside their sometimes fractious relations to cultivate unity of purpose among themselves. Here it is. As a result... They are perhaps the richest and most powerful of around 240 indigenous tribes remaining in Brazil. In other words, listen, the world doesn't need another fact about the Bible. The heart of the world will not change because we tell them something interesting in the book of Leviticus. Is it important? Sure, it's important. But what is life-changing is for the world to look on us in our worst moments. And we allow God, and we've prepared for that intersection, and it's not us, but it is the God of this universe working through us to create the best of moments. That, my friend, is different than the world is experiencing. I promise you that. Because God's not in the mix there. But if we allow him to be in the mix, we do something and something supernatural comes out of it and the world looks on and we become the richest and powerful tribe on the face of this planet to point to Jesus. That's the story. Does it matter? The intersection you might have with your wife this afternoon in the kitchen, you better believe it does. Does it matter how we as a church handle disagreement? You better believe it does because the world is watching. Let's pray. Father, we once again discover God how powerless we are as human beings. And our marriages, our friendships, our church, God, left to ourselves, certainly, God, certainly, will fail. At best, we'll survive. 
but will never thrive. So today, Father, we give ourselves to you. And we ask, God, that you encourage us, nudge us, inspire us, challenge us, convict us, whatever it is, God, to get us in the spiritual gym, to lift more weight, God, to put ourselves lower in prayer, to lift our eyes, our perspectives higher, to see the grander story, and to see, God, how closely connected we are with you as we treat other people as how we treat you. God, all these things can only come from you. So I pray for this tribe, God, today, our church, our families, our marriages, our parenting, our friendships, God. May they point people to you, not how we are in the best of times, God, but in the worst of times. We ask this for the credit and the glory and the honor of Jesus alone. Amen.